Good afternoon, or good evening. I'm not sure which one to uh, welcome you with, but uh, it's good to be together on this special occasion as we uh, get to witness and be a part of Dawson's ordination and installation into the Presbyterian Church in America. Um, Again, just wanted to introduce you, or introduce myself. My name is Dan Song. Uh, I'm a pastor and local pastor in St. Louis. Uh, Dawson, along with who just read Jenny Lynn Sweat, Uh, The three of us actually were full-time staff at our church for four years and during the particularization of our church. And so this means a lot, and it's a privilege of mine to be able to be here for Dawson's ordination service and to bring God's word to you all this evening. As we go to 1 Thessalonians this afternoon, going back from afternoon to evening, whichever way you want to look at it, just to give you a little bit of the context of 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes this letter to a very young church plant. They can't be more than a year old. And in this context, Paul, Timothy, and Silas, who come to plant this church, have to rush off in the middle of the night because they're getting death threats. They're being persecuted. And so as they leave, at a very young moment and very critical time, Timothy is sent back to the church to find out how they are doing. Paul loves this church. And so as he gets the report back from Timothy, he wants to encourage this very young church. Despite their youth, despite all the persecution, despite a majority culture that is worshiping pagan gods and idols, this church is actually flourishing. In the first chapter, Paul talks about how they are culture makers and culture shakers throughout Macedonia and Achaia, which is actually right now current Greece. This young minority cultural group of Christians is absolutely taking over that region. Why? It's because of the gospel that they believe in and hold fast to. And that's what we're going to look at this afternoon. That as we celebrate what God is doing in Dawson's life and here at Christ the King, we want to be reminded that ultimately it is not Dawson. It is not Chuck or any of the elders or leadership. It is our God and Savior who continues to reign here. And we want to be encouraged with that good news of the gospel this afternoon. And so let me just pray for us and then we're going to dive right into this portion of the letter. Lord, we come before you this afternoon celebrating what you have been doing and are doing here in El Paso. And so, Lord, I pray that though the grass withers and the flower fades, your word stands forever. And so, Lord, I pray that you would consecrate us now. Speak to us. Encourage us. Lord, we know that in the midst of our cultural moment, it is hard and difficult to live out the gospel But we know, Lord, you are greater than all things here on earth. So, Lord, encourage us through your word this afternoon. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It seems like in the last few years, especially here in the U.S., there's been a lot of pastors and Christian leaders who have fallen into moral failure. I think the one that has really shook the Christian world was the news of Ravi Zacharias last year. And I'm not going to go into 
what happened, um, maybe for those that have experienced some trauma in the past, but it was absolutely disgusting and despicable, and a lot of the private sins and how it impacted many, many, hundreds if not thousands, millions of people are yet to really be known. But the moral failures can be of all different sorts of things, right, that we've seen in the church. It could be moral failure because of the abuse of power, abuse of money, sexual abuse and harassment. So many things, list after list of how Christian leaders and pastors have failed us. I remember the first time my mentor, my first mentor from junior high, experienced a moral failure in his life. And it just impacted me as a seventh grader so much, along with a group of my friends. And I remember my buddy, who experienced this so differently, walked away completely from the faith. We are still dear friends, but he can never trust another pastor or leader again. Just during this pandemic, I heard from a brother, a member of our church, who I hadn't heard from over 13 months. And surely I thought the reason he wanted to reach out to me was because he was going to tell me that he was leaving the church because we hadn't heard from them forever. But instead of him telling me that he was leaving the church, he wanted to process with me just the disillusionment that he was experiencing because of Ravi Zacharias and other personal leaders and pastors from his past that fell into moral failure. Now, why are are so many Christian pastors and leaders falling into moral failure? Well, here, Paul gives us this beautiful picture of what it looks like to remain faithful to the gospel. He gives us this beautiful picture of faithful ministry in the church and what it should look like. You see, in this ancient world, one of the really interesting things for Thessalonica and a lot of that part of Greece was that you would have these sophists come into town. You'd have these orators who dressed really nicely, who waxed eloquent words, and would basically take people's money as a form of entertainment and then leave the city and leave them for dead. So when Paul, remember, he escapes and has to leave to Berea because of all the persecution and the death threats he experiences, these Jewish leaders come in to replace Paul, Timothy, and Silas, and what they tell the church in Thessalonian or in Thessalonica, is that Paul, Timothy, and Silas were actually no good, just like the sophists, who basically wanted to wax eloquent words and leave you for dead. And so they basically maligned Paul's character, his name, and his conduct. And it's in this situation that Paul gives a beautiful defense of the gospel. And he does so in these first six verses that we just read. Now look at, look at what he says in these first six verses. Look at verse 1. He says, for you know. You yourselves know. But he's, he says that four times. Why? He's saying you were there. This isn't a he said, she said. You were actually there to see us minister faithfully to you. Verse 2. He says, we have suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi. In the midst of much conflict, 
We didn't come here to get our reputations, like get, raise our reputations, but rather our reputations suffered. We suffered physically, emotionally, spiritually, in the midst of much conflict. Verse 4, we didn't come to please man, but to please God. Verse 5, never, we didn't come with words of flattery or pretext for greed, nor do we seek glory from people. You see, here Paul is setting up the context to say, you guys were there. You know. You know, you know, you know. And he's setting up this beautiful defense of the gospel in two ways. And I'm just going to give us two points here this afternoon of what this looks like to have a faithful ministry that is built upon this gospel community. And what he does is he actually illustrates it in two ways. He says, there's one for church leaders, and it also applies to you as church members. And the ways he does that, he says, it's the importance of God's word, and secondly, the importance of our character. So let's first look at the importance of God's word. Six times in this portion of the letter, Paul writes these words, gospel of God or word of God. In verse 2, he says, we have come to declare the gospel. Verse 4, speaking of the gospel. Verse 8, sharing the gospel. And verse 9, proclaiming the good news of Jesus, of the gospel, the word of God to you. Now that is abundantly clear. And what he's asking is, what have you done with it? And what does the church of uh, the Thessalonians do? Verse 13, you received it. You accepted the gospel that we have proclaimed to you. Not as the words of men, but as the word of God. Do you see that? There's two parts to the importance of God's word. For, for those in leadership, what does it look like for us to faithfully proclaim God's word? Not as the words of men, but of God. And then for us who are members, lay people in the church, what does it look like for us to actually receive the gospel and to accept the good news that is being proclaimed, shared, spoken? You see, here Paul wants to remind us that in order to have a faithful ministry in the church that actually impacts our society and our culture, we need to remember the importance of God's word. This is so important for for us to hear. Think about all the ways in which we are inundated every day with other gospels. Other good news of our culture. There's so many things today that vie for our hearts and our minds. And all of these things are constantly forming us and shaping us in our hearts and in our minds. Michael Goheen, who's a missiologist and I've been in my doctor ministry class and he came and spoke for a week and he shared about how for the last 10 years he's been going to these adult Sunday school classes and he asked this question, what is the meaning of life? And for the last 10 years, it has been the same answer over and over and over again. Material prosperity, consumerism, wealth, goods, these are, this is the Western story that is shaping us every single day of our lives. And what Paul is saying is that we actually need to rehearse, reimagine, be reshaped by the good news of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his love, his sacrifice for us. 
that that is a true story of history and we need to be shaped by that each and every single day of our lives. But rather what we hear and what is told to us is that we belong to ourselves. It's all about my comforts, my wants, my desires. That's why I love the Heidelberg Catechism and I love this morning how you all have been going through that. But the Heidelberg Catechism Catechism question number one asks us this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is, I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, the the culture and the world tells us one story that shapes us. But the gospel that we are being, that's being spoken to us, declared to us, is one that says that we we don't belong to ourselves. But we belong to our God and to one another. One of the ways that this has impacted me was listening to my daughters. We got three kids and the two younger daughters who are only 11, 11 and 7 or 8 asked me recently, what is a thigh gap? And it's because of YouTube, friends, people in the neighborhood, school that's telling them what is what how their body should actually be like you see every single day we are being told what to believe what to listen to where our identity and belonging are that's why it's so important for us to look at the gospel and to be able to receive it and accept it every single day of our lives But it's not only the importance of the gospel that we actually see here that's important that Paul wants to remind us of. He says it's the importance of our character. Through Paul's defense, what you see him hit home is that it can't just be the gospel that's proclaimed. It has to be more than that. What you preach, what you believe, must, re- must be reflected in one's character and one's life. And you see that in verse 8. Look at what verse 8 says. Paul writes, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Do you see that? It's not only the gospel that's important, but they shared their very lives and selves. It was their character that they shared with the Thessalonian church. And throughout this letter, you see him share, Paul, share what kind of character and life they exhibited because of the gospel of Jesus that they believed. Verse 2, we're given this character of boldness. Paul, Timothy, and Silas, their experience at Philippi where they were run out of town and flogged and beaten, that did not stop them. They were still bold with the gospel of Jesus. And they go to Thessalonica nonetheless to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Well, verse 3 and 4. It's because they were approved by God. So to please God and not man. There was boldness in their character. But not only boldness, right? Sometimes we can sort of say, oh, it's all about my boldness. And create enemies just for the sake of people hating us. And we feel good about that. We're being martyrs. But Paul goes on in verse 7 to say it's not just boldness, it's my gentleness. 
And he uses this beautiful metaphor and picture of a nursing mom. It describes one of care, of love, and sharing with one another like a nursing mom for her children. This delicate nature of of one's character in their lives. But not just gentleness, we see diligence. Verse 9, what does he say? He says, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while you proclaim to you the gospel of God. He's reminding them not to be idle. One of the things that Paul did was he actually got another job. He was a tent maker. Why? Because he did not want to burden the church of any financial strain. And so he worked. So boldness, gentleness, diligence, but also blamelessness. Can you imagine right now, can you say this of yourself? Verse 10, you are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. (laughs) They were above reproach. Their conduct and way of life was blameless and righteous. And then in verse 11 and 12, they were faithful. He gives another metaphor in verse 11, if you read that, for you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. See, fathers were the ones back in the ancient world that actually instructed, discipled, mentored their children. Nowadays, we leave it to the moms or the guardian, female guardians. But here, we see this beautiful picture of how the father, like a father, they were faithful to be able to care and walk and instruct this young church. You see how important character was to this church. Not just the leadership. He goes on in verse 13 and 14. What does he say? He says, Paul gives thanks that not only did they receive God's word, but they actually became imitators of the churches of God and in Judea. You suffered the same things because of the gospel, but you have lived a life worthy of the gospel. You see, it wasn't just the leaders and the pastors and the church planters that lived a life that actually represented the gospel, but it was the church as well. It was because of their character that actually transformed their society and culture because of who they were and because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you see here just these two beautiful ways of how important not only the gospel was, but also of their character. As we think about how important character is, Teresa Morgan She's a leading classicist in the world. And she asked this question, what is the single greatest contribution of Christianity to the ancient world? To to a church like Thessalonica. This is what Teresa Morgan said. I think that insistence by Christianity that God is always loving and always trustworthy and always just, and because of that, Christians are called always to practice those same goods towards God and always to practice those same goods to one another. That is a very big change in thinking from the ethics of the Greek and Roman world. Where the gods may be just, but they also may not be. Where the gods may love human beings, but they not, may not. Where being merciful might be the right thing on a certain day, but might not. Where loving your neighbor might serve you, but also might not. 
The Christian insistence that if those things are good, they are good for everybody and they are always good, I think that was transformational for the Roman world and then for the Christian world and is perhaps the single greatest contribution of Christianity to public life. In other words, what they believed, what they accepted of the gospel was actually lived out in their character. Things like human rights, things like charity, love of enemy, these were, these were optional in the Greco-Roman world. But for the Christians, these young believers, because of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, it transformed their way of life. Can you imagine, you know, we have, we, I love your quartet here. I was mentioning that to Dawson at lunch. But can you imagine, my daughter just picked up the violin not too long ago. But can you imagine her being asked to play the cello suites by Sebastian Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach? Can you imagine that? I mean, when my daughter plays just the, the, the what do you call it, the scale, it hurts. I cringe. But John Dixon, an author and writer on the historical Jesus, listen to what he says about differentiating between faithful and a beautiful tune versus though um sorry one that is composed versus one that is actually played listen to what he says jesus wrote a beautiful tune and christians have sometimes sung it very poorly and thus obscured the gospel and sometimes christians have sung it beautifully with lasting effect and people can see the gospel in us you see we can actually discern between a beautiful composition and a terrible or ordinary performance. And so it is with the gospel. The gospel is the most beautiful tune. And we might see it played and performed horribly, but we cannot disagree that what Jesus did is the most beautiful thing in all of this world. I think it's very easy to recall names of people who have experienced moral failure. And it always hits the headline news in our society and nation. Those who have fallen from grace because of moral failures and for playing and singing the gospel poorly, thus obscuring the gospel, as John Dixon says. They're the ones that always get the headline news. They're the ones that make it on Twitter and the blogospheres. And that shouldn't actually surprise us. But there are also countless men and women who have sung the gospel beautifully, who don't make the news. One of those men have been there for me, who passed away recently, and his name was Dr. David Calhoun. I had the opportunity to sit under him because he was my interim pastor. He never made it to news when he died. But this man exhibited the character that we see in the Gospels. One of faithfulness, boldness, and gentleness. One of being above reproach and being diligent. Now, I don't remember any of the sermons he preached in that one year. I actually do remember one. 
And I, and I remember because this was towards the end of his ministry, sitting in his office week after week and taking all these notes because I wanted to be able to emulate his life. I can't find that journal. <laughs> but you know what has stuck with me to this day? It's his character. It's his love for people. He went through decades of chemotherapy. And yet he would still want to meet with me every single week. He participated at this black Baptist church in St. Louis. And even when he was going through chemotherapy, he would sit back on one of those chairs and stand for as long as he could for those three hours services. (laughs) But it was also his boldness for the gospel. It was his love for people. And it was gentleness that I remember And he represented Christ to me. One of my former elders wrote a letter just wanting to lift up Dr. David Calhoun on a Facebook post. And this is what he wrote about Dr. David Calhoun. I remember the day I was diagnosed with cancer and Dr. Dr. Calhoun heard about it. As soon as I got up at the end of his class to leave, he called out to me, Mr. Going, A word in my office, please. In his office that day, I'll never forget what he said and how it made me feel. I walked in there afraid and alone and came out comforted and encouraged. Two things stood out from that conversation. First, Mr. Going, this is going to be the worst time of your life. He went on to explain and warn me that I'll lose a lot of friends as they don't know how to respond or they'll say really crappy stuff out of their discomfort. He was right. I lost several friends during this time. But second, that this will be the best time of my life. I was definitely puzzled when he said this. He explained that God will draw near and that I will feel his presence ever so deeply. He said this with such deep conviction that I believed him. And he was right. I felt God's presence during that cancer journey. And then he prayed for me. Oh man, it was a powerful moment. I know I'm not doing justice to this account in his office, but I can tell you this. I walked out of his office deeply encouraged and ready to battle cancer. Everyone needs a Dr. Calhoun in their corner, and I was thankful to have him in my life. That was over 20 years ago. Rest in peace, Dr. Calhoun. Your race is finished, and you fought valiantly. There are people who don't make headlines, like Dr. Calhoun, but we need faithful men and women who exhibit the gospel, who preach it faithfully, but also in their character. Now, we don't follow them because they are the Christ. They're not the Christ. Christ lived the perfect life that we could not live and cannot live. This, these characteristics, we will fail and stumble. But we have Christ to lean on, whose yoke is easy and his burden is light. And as we continue to follow Christ, we also find encouragement from these spiritual fathers and brothers who exhibit what it looks like to love God, to love neighbor, so that through this small cultural minority group of Christians, we actually slowly but surely change this society and culture because of the good news of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this afternoon and we thank you for not only people like Paul, Timothy, and Silas, 
but also for spiritual fathers and mothers who have lived faithfully, not because of anything that they have done, but because of Jesus, who is our perfect Savior. And so, Lord, I pray that you would fill us with hope, knowing that though we might fail, Lord, not only do we have brothers and sisters and a community here to lean on, to support one another, to be reminded that we don't, we don't belong to ourselves, but we belong to you and to one another. Lord, I pray that ultimately we would always look to you, our Savior, who lived the perfect life and died the death we deserved, so that we might be able to experience the fullness and the beauty and the contentment and joy that life has to offer in Christ alone. Do that good work, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.